0: Hi, I'm Matt. And I'm Joe. We're the NC Wine Guys. In this episode of Cork Talk, we sit down with John Wright of Sanctuary Vineyards in Jarvisburg, North Carolina.
1: John's family has been farming in Currytuck for seven generations. The inspiration to switch to grapes came from John's early work at a nearby vineyard. Over the years, he has invested time and energy in working with each vine individually, resulting in the highest quality wine his vines can produce.
0: So sit back, pour a glass, and listen. All right, we're here with John Wright with Sanctuary Vineyards here in Jarvisburg, North Carolina. John, uh, welcome to Cork Talk. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
1: So, John, tell us a little bit about yourself and Sanctuary Vineyards.
2: Well, so me personally, I'm from Jarvisburg. I was uh, born and raised here and uh, seventh generation on this farm. And we have a long history here in the county in agriculture, but not with grapes, Viticulture, and that started in 2001 when we began planting our first acre of Nipper grapevines here in Jarvisburg. Uh, Prior to that, we'd been growing potatoes, corn, wheat, soybeans, Uh, but the decision to get into growing European grapes um, was something that we just began to ponder at the turn of the millennium.
1: So what did you first plant in that first acre?
2: Our first planting was Sangiovese and Norton. Okay. And I've torn both <laughs> out. <laughs> so they're not there anymore. Um, and then we followed that later the same year with Traminette and Chardonnay, which are both still growing. Of course. Just to let you know, maybe you can infer what you know what, what does better, at least in this climate. You know, the hybrids are, of course. they're now nearing 20 years of age, and they've got, their yields have dropped, but they're excellent grapes. So that was our first planting that finished up in 2002.
1: So where'd you go from there?
2: From there, we started planting uh, Syrah, Viognier, and, and then some Tempranillo, and Cabernet Sauvignon. And it, that uh, took us into, I'd say 2005, 2006, when we began to consider that we needed to plant varieties that were more suited to the climate rather than to our personal style and our preferences. So that was the start of planting Albariño, different clones of Viognier, and then Tanat, Petit Mansing came after that. Then shortly thereafter, we planted Alianico, so it sounds like you have a really
0: wide variety of grapes. What kind of got you into thinking those those grapes?
2: Uh, the first grapes we planted were... Uh, we, I initially started interning at a winery on Knott's Island called Moonrise Bay. And Moonrise Bay was set up in 1999 and ran until about 2007, 2008, um, and the vineyard was sold. But I interned there And the owner of Moonrise Bay had planted over 10 varieties on about 15 acres. And he seemed to believe that some grapes did better than others and that there were a few that he wished he could experiment with. And so we started out with Sangiovese, a grape that he had a hunch might work, uh, and Norton, a grape that was working well for him and was very rot-resistant and um, made a wine that, that he thought worked well in the cellar. Um, as well as you know, work well in the vineyard. That's what brought me there, because at the time I was maybe 21 and did not have full grasp on viticulture. So I learned at that vineyard by working there several years, but also I did a certificate from Cal Davis, um, which I was able to do online and then do chemistry work at the local community college for the enology track. So we've been planting the grapes continually. There wasn't time for me to leave and get a degree. Not that I think it's necessarily that important that you get a viticulture or anology degree, but it sure helps. And, of course. And and so I believe that going forward, the more we support you know the community college and educational opportunities, the, the better it'll be. You know, for the state, I think all of that will begin to sort of. Help kids grow up knowing that there's a wine industry that would support their, their employment. What was here before you decided to plant grapes? So this was a farm that was planted. Uh, the main farm here is about 100 acres, and it was planted uh, from the road where where the the road leading the Outer Banks it, it bisects Curry Tuck County, which is a peninsula. So you're on the east side of the Curry Tuck Peninsula. And up here near the road, it's a high, well-drained soil, and it's a loamy sand complex um, that is in lower Currituck. And that's what those soils support viticulture of European varieties. So it's the kind of soil that benefits uh, growing orchards or vineyards. But in the past, my family had planted corn, wheat, soybeans, and potatoes, and Consequently, in a soil like this, the yields are lower. so lower curry tuck is does not have such high yields as northern curry tuck where the soils are richer. The farming down here sometimes is less profitable than mm-hmm. the farming at the northern northern end of the county where they get more rain uh, and the soil has much more organic matter in it. So it wasn't that much of a struggle to convince my folks to try different crops when we weren't necessarily getting the best yields possible. Um, and that's just a sign that maybe this is a, a unique area for viticulture because if you go one county over, your, your soil is going to be uh, darker, heavier, right. and it's going to support um, crops at much higher harvest weights. So like cabbage, you know, <clears> potatoes, <throat> sweet potatoes, which are not going to crop as heavily in lower curry cook as anywhere else. So there is, I think easier to discuss and talk about the change, it's harder to actually do it. You know, when we started to realize that farming for grapes involves significant upfront costs and then significant annual maintenance and labor to keep it going. We, we don't farm the vineyard like we farmed corn, wheat, or beans. Of course not. We, we're unable to mechanize much. And there are lots of wineries in North Carolina or vineyards that are able to mechanize and streamline their processes. And we just don't do that. Not yet. We might in the future, Mm -hmm. but um, we're at nearly 30 acres now. So at some point, it would be nice to mechanize the operations, but for the quality, we enjoy the individual control that we have over each plant. So we're treating each plant as if it's its own organism. We're not treating the vineyard in a a block-by-block, one-acre decision. We're making vine-by-vine decisions. Wow. But a lot of people do that. It's yeah. not—it's not uncommon. Right. Um, but if you if your vineyard's 200 acres, unless you're going to have a crew of 40 people working year-round, it's really not. There's no way for you to work it by hand. But you can still have excellent quality if you have really nice equipment and you, you set out properly and put the right vines in the right site. Mm-hmm. And there's, there are some you know there's wineries that we've talked about before in Yadkin that are doing exactly that. They're big wineries, but they're well-planted. They're in the right place and they're able to mechanize their operations. And so the quality is great there too. Hmm.
0: So like if you're treating each plant as its own individual organism, do you have like a log?
2: So we have the, the vineyards gridded in that way, okay. uh, but it more or less, it involves us going through, uh, we, we have a certain number of passes that we like to put through the vineyard. So the vine gets this many touches per year. Usually it's like 25 plus, um, which is a lot of, work um some i think maybe in california or parts of south america or australia where it's it's like industrial farming the vines really aren't getting handled much other than when they get put in the ground planted and after that they're pretty much you know once they've been staked they're allowed to run free and then everything's mechanized from then on out and uh, we're just not set up for that so when we look at the vine and we see something wrong, we might flag it, we'll take a photo, we'll mark it, where its location is, and then come back to it later. Yeah, we re- we're replanting a lot now because the vineyard's over 15 years old. And most, most of the sites you know, on our initial farm are over 15 years old now. It's, that's old enough yeah. for North Carolina vines that you begin to see a decrease in yield. There's a lot of trunk disease that happens in eastern North America. It happens here just like it would happen anywhere that's humid, excess rainfall. We're not in the desert. It's not an arid region. So right. we get the same problems east of the Mississippi as probably everybody.
1: So take us through a typical growing season. Kind of when does it start, and mm-hmm. when does harvest start for at least the whites and then into the reds?
2: Here we prune in January, and we prune pretty early uh, just because we cane prune, which is a more labor intensive way to prune. We look at bud break occurring maybe the third week of March. It used to be the first week of April, but it's moving backwards Mm -hmm. and uh, bud breaks earlier. Then we'll be leaf pulling in early May. Then we'll be hedging right about now, cutting the vines when they've grown too long for the trellis. We're going to bird net in about two weeks because we have a significant bird problem. Then we're going to wait for late July, early August and cross fingers hope for no hurricanes, tropical disturbances. By third week of August, we're going to pick some white grapes, hybrids, Chardonnay. Labor Day usually sees Tempranillo. Uh, We have some partial blocks of Pinot Noir that yield. That's around Labor Day. Then, by the second week of September, everything wants to come in almost at once. And that's when you see your Syrah, uh, Merlot, early ripening blocks of Cabernet Sauvignon. And then bringing up the tail end of the season, you get Petit Verdot, Pallionico, Cabernet Franc. We like to hang Cabernet Franc as long as we can. It gets riper, yeah. right? It makes a bigger
0: bolder wine, yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah. You can. It's, it can be a tough cab franc if you pick it too close to Labor Day, mm. um, which is kind of a marker for us. If we get past Labor Day without any major storms, we start to see the seeds ripen, the, the grapes desiccate a little bit, and take on true ripening, berry ripening. Not shoots. You know, mm. when the shoots stop growing, that's that's when the plant can really ripen the grapes. A logical standpoint.
1: So, do you have any uh, concerns with late frost or, or that sort of thing? Here, is that pretty much?
2: I'm not worried right. about that. Okay. Uh, there's so much to worry about. I just right. don't right. worry about that, though. Right.
1: Probably the tropical systems are more yeah. much more of a concern.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. A couple of years ago, we had a we had a hurricane. It was downgraded, but it was July 4th. You know, I mean, that's early. So it came through with tropical storm winds, but that's a bit early. Mm. You can't pick anything July Fourth. It's just nothing. No. No, it's not there. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, to consider that the hurricane season might be changing and getting longer, that's a that's a problem. That's something to think about for me more than than frost and freeze.
1: So is it is more of the hurricane concern the wind or the or the rain or all of the above?
2: Rain. Okay. because rain. we've had some really strong storms and they've not hurt the canopy hmm. too much. If the wind is uh, northeast, it'll have a lot of salt in it, and it'll burn the leaves, Mm but it won't defoliate the plant. It will just turn the leaves kind of crispy, and that'll slow down some of that late season ripening that we look for. If it rains more than two or three inches here, then that damages fruit quality. Sure. After Labor Day, kind of like last year in the Agan Valley, they got a foot of rain. yeah. right during when they needed mm-hmm. they needed it at least yeah yeah so it's going to be a big rose year or it's going to be a
0: big year ask for blending stuff. Ask about that.
1: there's <laughs> a few folks that that let things hang and i think they were pleasantly surprised with the outcome but then there are others that did pick early and mm-hmm. there were a lot of roses they
2: made. so yeah we picked or blending for non-vintages which is yeah, well, the okay. wine will be fine. Yeah. you, you right. got to change the style. Sure. As long as you don't try to make reserve barrel-aged right. red, yeah. then you'll be fine. But that's right. when you'll see what happens. When oh, you yeah. Have the, uh, underwrite fruit. So you mentioned that you have Syrah here as well.
0: So, you know, we, we talk with vineyards throughout the state. Their Syrahs are not doing the best sometimes. Some of them are doing great. How does it do out here?
2: Syrah out here, it grows. Um, it's very vigorous, which is everybody's concern. Yes. Yeah. and it doesn't usually stop sending vegetative growth until the very end of the season. Mm. Uh, and so to get Syrah fully ripe, it really needs to stop growing its shoots and take care of its fruit. Which you'll hear me talk about that at length. But that's the marker of a great wine when the vineyard knows when to stop its vegetative cycle and focus on its ripening cycle. And so Syrah doesn't really stop its vegetative cycle for anything Mm. other than an outright drought. So in years where we have drought conditions in August and September, it's it's a nice Syrah. Um, But those years are maybe two out of five. Okay. So the other three years, it's going to be rosé. There was a French winemaker that had told me that the issue with Syrah is that um, it will not stop unless it's in a restrictive soil on a very... Good slope, so which would explain, you know, why Syrah is really good, like Cabernet and Northern Rhone. That's that's where it belongs. Yeah, like on the side a, of a hill.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. and
2: then and in Australia they are able to deficit irrigate. Mm. You know, so Australia is just they can pick and choose when they irrigate. So you know, areas like Barossa or just anywhere in in South Australia, they can turn the water on when they want to, and therefore they can bring the Syrah to ripeness under their own terms. But I love Syrah. It's my favorite grape. It's just not, um, it's not really compatible with the East Coast without a lot of attention and detail. And it's going to require the winemaker alter their target product based on the grape. Mm-hmm. So the winemaker won't get to choose what the Syrah tastes like. The Syrah is going to choose what the wine comes out to be. I mean, y'all have drink drank a lot of Syrah around North Carolina. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's tough. You know, I'd right. say we've made three really standout Syrahs in 10 years. Otherwise, we've been making rosé with it, and it's made, it makes it awesome rosé. Yes. It's just the difference between red grapes for rosé right. and mm-hmm. red grapes for a 25 to $30 red wine okay. are very different, right. and you can't put the first category into the second category. No, you can't. But you can easily pick perfectly ripe Syrah in late September and make rosé with it, and it would be probably like a, Mind-bending rosé, but when you pick it at the beginning of September and the seeds are not totally brown and ripe yet, it's like you really can't make the the best red wine with it. No, yeah, the vintage variation on the on the
0: straws that we've had is just incredibly like broad. Some yeah. years are fantastic, other years are just like, okay, well, that was that. Mm-hmm. So.
2: Well, you know, in areas of the world where they have more of a, uh, they take the wines and they give them. Their targeted growing areas or Appalachians. Um, it's, it's very American to look at that and say, well, they won't let you grow Pinot Noir um, you know, in Bordeaux, but you should try that. Well, you can, but you would have to take it off your label and it would just be
0: mm-hmm.
2: like, you know, a, it'd be like a Vendee table you know, or something yeah. that, that would lower the value dramatically. Mm-hmm. But honestly, they've been doing it so long, they've been able to, spend centuries to figure out what their grapes are and here we're trying but you know maybe 50 years from now somebody said that Syrah was not a great idea at the turn of the you know 21st century to to have that yeah as as such a significant planting but we've had it now for like 16 years in the ground and that's just it's hit or miss i would certainly pick other grapes now like i haven't planted new Syrah whole blocks in 10 years because i'm not i just don't think i'm that's not the future for us yeah i love the wine though i just usually love it from other places (laughs) more. you know i mean when i get it from here it it feels really good and and we're happy that we're able to coax true varietal flavor out of it Mm -hmm. but then we say gosh well we got to sell that and let people have it well then they come back and they say well i want we call it shipwreck it's our syrah and they won't come back, and they want it. And I have to tell them, you know, it's been three years since I had a, a really you know, optimal harvest for Syrah. They've almost forgotten about it uh, you know, because we have these hurricane vintages. And I'm just not going to sell. It's not worth varietal it. Varietal Syrah from a hurricane vintage. Yeah. And oh. the rosés are so good. I mean, you can. It's rosés are great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a, I mean, could be a future. Still very
1: popular, right? Yeah. Now,
2: so. Yeah, and they'll stay. They will. They'll stay marketable for, for forever as long as people. Want to have wine with food, mm-hmm. roses are going to be well, especially top. in the summertime, too,
0: because you can put a nice chill on the rose and just eat that with a uh, drink that with anything, yeah, yeah,
1: because especially it's something food group. So, let's talk about Sanctuary Vineyards. How, how did the name come about, and what's the signif- significance? Uh,
2: it's the name came from my uncle who um, has farmed oh. here, his whole life, and Thought we thought about what what it means here at the farm. We didn't want to Name it after our family Our family's been here a while a long time, but with the last name right and you're near <laughs> Kitty Hawk We didn't want to write people to feel like we were marketing on a name mm-hmm. That Makes sense. was not ours. so uh, we went with sanctuary vineyards because the farm itself has um, Where the vineyards are, is a higher elevation, but at the back of the farm, as you head toward the ocean, it uh, steps down about 10 to 15 feet Hmm. to the marsh. And near the marsh, we will plant crops. And then in the fall, we will take water, pump water into these areas. We call them impoundments. And then they'll be lightly flooded and then birds can come in and we leave the corn yeah. And then they get to feed in the impoundments. But there's no hunting in the impoundment. It's, it's just for the purpose of well, wildlife habitat. Sure. And that conjured sanctuary as, a, as an idea, right. as, a, as a process. And the three snow geese are on the logo. It all ties in uh, to that. It's, it's significant so because it, it brings about an idea of what the place is like. It doesn't trade on our a name or anything that, you know, it's more of an idea because mm-hmm. um, we, we've been here a long time farming, but that's just all we've done, really, um, or that we've been known for. And, you know, when you got the Wright Brothers and everything that happens, it's like 15 miles away, everybody's going to see right. the monument, and we just early on had the idea that we didn't want to confuse people either.
0: Yeah. That makes sense when they hear, you know, Oh, this is the, you know, the right vineyards, to whatever it's like, Oh, they, they had a vineyard too. That's great. <laughs> oh yeah.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, we, we just shipwrecked and have never left. It's our right family. Yeah. But I will say yeah, we, that my family was here first. Just didn't, Invent in flight, you know, so <laughs> yeah. It's a big, big difference. I guess those rights were from Ohio, and then came here. They to, came down, and yeah. they didn't. They they were friendly and got along really well with the locals, but they didn't set down roots here. Okay, um, and they just took off and left. So. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they had a lot. They ended up having a lot of success, you know, from a business standpoint with aeronautics later on. Mm. You know, but they just couldn't do that from here. Kitty Hawk was a the desolate area at that time. Um, there was no, there weren't trees down on the Outer Banks back then. A lot of the trees were planted by the um, WPA after World War Hmm. as a means of, you know, getting America back to work after the Great Depression, excuse me. And so a lot of those pine forests that are on the Outer Banks are new, Hmm. relatively new. So back when the Wright Brothers were here, the pictures of that hill there's nothing in the background except for the ocean on one side and the marsh and the sound on the other of course now you go there and it's just <laughs> covered with trees and it's yes. very vegetated a lot of live oaks but yeah the outer banks was not a destination back then so <clears> once they figure out how to fly they just went back home <laughs> <laughs> well let's get back to grapes here yeah so uh
0: you grow a huge variety of grapes so what what works well, kind of what doesn't work well, and you know, talk us through some of that.
2: Okay, so you want to start with what works well or what doesn't work well? Whatever works for you. <laughs> Obviously, bad news for. It, <laughs> and on the high note, yeah, yeah you know. the worst grapes. A lot of the worst grapes are ones we've torn out. Okay. So you know, we tore out Sangiovese because it, I think, maintains its acidity and its best characteristics in a cooler climate and it was having to be picked right around the end of august early september um and our clone wasn't the best i think people now in the acting are growing better clones of sangiovese but in the late 90s there wasn't a lot available from italy that had been cleared for foundation plant services in california where we get a lot of our plants coming through it wasn't the best clone so you know, maybe that's, again, another issue. I, I planted a clone of Cabernet Sauvignon that was a real bust for us. Mm. And a whole acre of it I had to tear that out and replanted with a better clone, which is like a 337. It's a much better Cabernet Sauvignon clone. So the clones make a big difference, um, almost as much as the varietal. Uh, but we've got other varieties like Alionico, which is a real uh, hassle. You know? okay. and, and so it wants to crop very heavily, and it has to be almost manicured To maintain an appropriate yield, otherwise the fruit lags behind in its maturity. Um, You know, I think that Cabernet Franc is just the is it can be a pain sometimes because it does hang out there pretty well through adverse weather, but Cabernet Franc is doesn't always taste or smell good until it reaches the appropriate ripeness. And some years it just doesn't quite get there. Mm -hmm. And then you end up having to also try to figure out, can we make a rosé with this, an alternative product? And Cabernet Franc is just a a grape that I think has been put forward as a a highly desirable grape for the mid-Atlantic. And Virginia does make some really nice Cabernet Francs. And uh, some folks in North Carolina doing the same thing too. But it's so weather dependent um, that I'm not... 100% 100% sold on it. We've got three clones of Cabernet Franc planted on two different soil types, and when we blend them together, they seem to work out well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm not a, I'm not crazy about Cabernet Franc, I and mean, sometimes I think it can be a little bit underripe. Even the examples from France that are considered benchmarks can sometimes taste a little bit underripe. Yeah, a little green sometimes. A little and I like funky, weird wines, and I think a lot of no, that that's like what i'm into mm-hmm. is really esoteric bizarre wines. but if they don't if they don't have a good foundation of alcohol acid and body together then and they're out of balance they're just not good you know, so that's it's going to take some work to get the right cab front clone soil type lined up for the state to really make its mark like virginia has but then we got Tanat, Petit ordo Albarino, Petit saying those four grapes are great. Cool. Every year. Yeah, almost every year. Almost every year? Mm-hmm. Nice. Yeah, so Albarino is a, it's a Spanish grape. It, it grows in a climate not unlike the Outer Banks in northwest Spain. It's got a thick skin. It ripens um, evenly. It can be picked for a variety of styles. It can be picked early, like too early, for a vino verde. Um So it's a good, it's got a good plan B. Well, unlike, you know, so some things don't have a plan B. You know, like Alionico is not a grape that has a plan B. Yeah, it's like you make a wine or you You don't. Yeah, you either make red wine with this or you're just going to dump it and Mm -hmm. throw it in the ditch. Because it doesn't, it's not the best for rosé. It can be like really peppery and sort of bizarrely herbaceous. And, And that's no way to that you don't want that in rosé either, you know. Yeah. So it's almost like to make a really good alionico rosé, you've got to get it ripe enough to make a good red alionico. Hmm. All right. And Cabernet Franc is the same way. And you might as well make those. you might as well the reds. Yes, yeah, because you get higher value there and you get you just have more applications once you've made a varietal red. Um, I think more people are looking for that varietally labeled red whereas with the rosé, they don't need to know it's a rosé of Syrah, they just need to know that it's a dry rose and it's got broad appeal at the table. Yeah. Yeah, and there's other grapes that I think would work well. I just have not got around to planting them. And we're also looking into new plantings of Pierce's resistant varietals hmm. that are being developed um, at Cal Davis that have vinifera parentage. Right. Like Pierce's resistance. And they're hmm. not quite ready for sale yet. Um so need a little more time. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, I mean, imagine if the wine tasted like Cabernet Sauvignon, but it, didn't, it couldn't get Pierce's disease. That, that would be nice. And that'd be great. But you couldn't call it Cabernet Sauvignon. That's the issue. But for wineries like us that use a lot of proprietary names for blends, because people don't, they don't worry so much about the grape that's in it. They care about the flavor. We already have to change people's minds frequently at the tasting bar about pouring them our product. Mm. Once they like the product, it's not so important to them if it's a variety that's got letters and numbers in it, I mean right. this, these are varieties that don't have names yet. They're strictly on a research purposes. Hmm. Um, but once the, if they get out there and make it, they would have proprietary names for the vines that might not, you know, bring anybody jumping up to the shelf at the supermarket to buy it. But a proprietary name blend would be nice. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's what we think about next probably because I don't know how sustainable it is long term. Growing European grapevines in the Mid-Atlantic. If you start to see the climate get more difficult for the grapes we've been growing, mm. you know, or if you get to the point where you can't apply certain pesticides to the vines, I mean, you know, imagine a, a place where you you have to farm them more organically, not because you choose to, but because that's how you're compliant. What if those become the rules? So you would have you'd have to start thinking about vines that are better suited to the the environment we got, that's like a 25 to 50 year thought process. Yeah. You know, but that's something that's worth yeah, thinking about. Yeah, good things to think about that. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's long term. I think that, you know, for now, Albariño, Chanat Petit Verdot, Petit Van Sing are high on my list. Um, and s- specific clones of Bordeaux varietals work well, too. But not, not the ones I've already torn out. <laughs> <laughs> true. Very yeah. true.
1: We've talked a little bit about, you mentioned a little bit about Pinot Noir and having that. So talk about that and the vineyard and the decision to plant it and how's it doing? Uh,
2: so we have Pinot, I planted Pinot Noir about 12 years ago first with um, a clone that is from Germany, but grown extensively in New York. Okay. Um, and so that clone is not used much for the sort of glamorous Pinot Noir bottlings. Like, there's there's clones, you know, like um, what we would call the Dijon clones that are being planted all over the world, uh, from New Zealand to Chile to the Russian River, Sonoma Coast. There's the same three or four clones, and we didn't want to just try those right off the bat, so I tried this sort of heritage German uh, Pinot Noir clone because it is supposed Supposedly the toughest skin and the most adaptable to humidity. And so we've had that in the ground for over a decade. And, and that one does well. And so we were, we took the leap three years ago to plant two acres of Pinot Noir of five different clones. And so hoping that we would be able to make a varietal Pinot Noir. Uh, we planted it on a site that has such high um, draining capacity, that it's having to be watered almost weekly. Oh, wow. And so the vines are not doing very well, to be honest. They're barely setting their roots, and we had issues with Albarino the same way. It took us five years to get a crop with Albarino. So the same thing's happening with Pinot Noir, but hopefully what's happening is that it's developing a decent root structure. And uh, so this fall we're going to take a small crop and make possibly a single barrel and just see how that works out. Cool. Um, but I would still say Pinot Noir is not maybe the best idea in North Carolina. You have such great marketing opportunity with it, though. Jarvis Burgundy. Yeah. yeah. So when it happens, if it happens, it'll be, I think it'll be a fun wine, but I, I wouldn't look for it to have really deep color. I'd look for it to be a little bit more sort of earthy, sure. or mm-hmm. lighter in color. And more ephemeral. Of the sun. Yeah, it's definitely going to be like um, one of my favorite Pinot Noirs is uh from virginia it's the akita ridge pinot noir and it it doesn't have the deepest color but it has complexity that lasts for like a minute um which is way which has way more to offer than the sort of generic west coast pinot noir um you know oregon pinot noirs are great because they offer ripeness and good acidity and moderate complexity at a decent price but like that pinot noir from virginia has it's just a, such a long line. Mm. And um, I think they got elevation which helps. Cooler nights. Right. I'm, I'm not gonna have right. elevation. You know, long island has a couple there's a couple great examples of Pinot Noir from the South Fork. We have pretty much like a hot Long Island here. Mm. Just from a viticultural standpoint is what, what we are. We're a warmer warmer version of Virginia's eastern shore.
0: Okay.
2: Which there aren't a lot of vineyards over there either, no. unfortunately, yeah. but you could. You could definitely put more vineyards on Virginia's Eastern Shore, and you could put some in Great County too. It's just the land values are getting too high to farm. Mm-hmm. We're just too close to the ocean and a resort area. So you mentioned,
0: uh, you know, some funky, weird wines that you like to do. Talk to us about some of those funky experiments uh, that we are making, yep. or that I drink, okay. or so, yeah, so some that you're making, and then you know, maybe something that you're trying to emulate.
2: Uh, well, so we we always try to have a little experiment each harvest just to keep us interested and to keep keep everybody guessing. And so we've, uh, I remember one, more often than not, what will happen is we will aim for something that's really esoteric and then find that the finished product is a little bit more conventional that we like because we took steps to keep this wine clean and to keep it in a sound place from a fermentation and storage standpoint. Mm-hmm. Uh, like we've been making orange wines for a few years and orange wines traditionally were they were grapes that were white but also some red grapes and they were just chucked together into pots or amphora and then buried and then dug back up some of these wines didn't have sulfites or preservatives and so it's it wasn't not like maybe the most appealing wine but it has an appealing history and backstory and so in Italy, they were making over the last 25, to 50 years advances in modern fermentation techniques on orange wines and skin contact wines. Mm-hmm. And so now you look at like some of these skin contact Pinot Grigios in Italy, um, and some wines from Georgia, uh, Republic of Georgia, and that are orange wines, and those are modern um, techniques on ancient style wines. And those are probably the benchmarks now. Some Eastern European and Italian orange wines. Cool. So we've done it with Viognier and Pinot Gris, and they tend to be they're fermented on their own skins and then left either in bin or barrel for up to a month, so that they really macerate and unleash tannins into what would otherwise be your standard dry white wine. So it has the tannins and mouthfeel of a red wine, and the aromatics possibly like a rosé. A lot of aging capability, too. So all those tannins are in there. You Can't see them, but you can definitely taste them. Um, right. And they they keep that wine snug for a while in bottle. Not that we're looking to long age these wines, but it's nice to come back to a wine five sure. years later and not yeah. be disappointed, but sort of elated that it got better. Um, so the orange wines are that's that's worked out well. We've tried to uh, I tried to do like spontaneous ferments. Throughout the years, and that's never, never gone well. Like the natural, the right. native ferments, yeah, um, I think work best in really arid environments, where you don't have lots of competing ambient yeast in the air, mm-hmm. where you might just have one singular strain of ambient yeast that's hanging around here on this farm and in this really windy area where there's lots of crops going on and people are, you know, growing various things around you whether it's like tomatoes or watermelons or cucumber or sweet potatoes everything that's growing around here has its own sort of life force and it turns into just a big cloud and that's what you're waiting on to start your ferment when you do native ferments Mm -hmm. and i just don't think that's maybe the best idea for me um but you know a lot of great native ferment wines are coming out of you know Australia, South Africa, I think drier, warm places where they can maybe control that more.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, but usually, when you start off a ferment without a cultured yeast, you're you're allowing spoilage bacteria to get around it. Yeah, you really don't want that. You don't. You yeah. don't. So, what we mostly do now is we'll do whole berry ferments to start, hmm. um, and we'll lock the lock the fruit up in a bin or a tank, and just. We don't crush any of our fruit. There was no crushers, just D stemmed only, sort which is kinda how they do it in Burgundy. And let the fruit get to the tank intact and let it begin to ferment under its own weight. So it is native for a day or two, but in a sealed environment that's more hermetic, where there's not gonna be a bunch of crazy stuff. Acetobacter, I'd say. Yeah. It was spread by Drosophila and fruit flies, they can't get in there. That's the problem because we'd gone and like taken barrels, broke the top of the barrel off, just dumped must into it, and then said, Do your thing. That, that turned it. That, that's going <laughs> to turn into vinegar. You know, because you can't just let it do its thing. You've got to yeah, control right. these. Gotta, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, natural wines are a big thing now, but we can't afford to make, I can't afford to make natural wines here because I can't afford to lose whole batches of wine, and our customer is already not totally sure about North Carolina wines. And that's how it is for most North Carolina wineries. They are constantly having to educate our visitor and make sure that we're giving them a premium product that is uh, at a fair price, but that also looks good in the bottle, and when you open it, it smells good and tastes good, just like when you tried it at the tasting room. Right. Yeah. And uh, To make natural wines is to not be able to guarantee that Yeah, and the consistency, even though
0: maybe not from vintage to vintage, but just you open a bottle, you know it's going to be a good bottle.
2: That's something to strive for and something that the customers need to know exists. Yeah, I mean, I'm not naming brands, but a lot of people that come in here, they drink a a Chardonnay that, you know, has a screw top and it comes from Sonoma. And it's maybe a little oaky for my taste, but pleasantly, you know, over-oaked. And that's what they like. And they say that brand, and then I say, well, ours is not quite that oaky, but it's maybe half of that amount of oak, and it's got flavors of apple and, and citrus, and um, it's, it's nice, the medium acidity, and that's what it tastes like. And when they leave, I have to be able to vouch for that and mm-hmm. say, like, this is where we are. Often people come in and tell me what they drink, and I have to give them a reference point. Yeah, if, right. you, if you like this, this uh, red blend that you can buy at the grocery store, I can almost guarantee you're you going to like this red blend that we do because we blended it so that it had a similar flavor to the cherries and sort of rhubarb and everything that you get in that one wine that you're used to buying at Total Wine or at the grocery store. And to take that control out of the process is to be unsure in your marketing principles. So the roulette sort of idea of natural wines is something that I enjoy it when I'm buying them because I don't mind if every, you know, like sixth or eighth bottle might need to go down the drain because it's, <laughs> it's, it's unique and fun to be able to sort of uh, hope that you've, you have get that sort of lightning moment when you open that bottle. But for me personally, from a business standpoint, I just can't, I can't risk it.
1: Yeah. Understandable. Yeah. So how do you deal with the perception that you can't grow over this right here on the coast? How, how, do, you, how do you overcome that? Because obviously you've proven you can, yeah. um, but muscadine is native grape to this right. area, and probably that's what most
0: people would expect to find at the coast.
2: Well, North Carolina is really unique in that it is, uh, to my understanding, the only state that has a vibrant muscadine and vinifera industry. So in South Carolina, there's a handful of vinifera producers. Um but they are isolated mm-hmm. you know, in one small corner of the state. Extreme you otherwise expect the entire rest of the state to be muscadine or sweeter. And in mm-hmm. Virginia, there are a handful of muscadine producers on the south side in Hampton Roads, but they have, in a way, been isolated to that corner because the marketing materials in Virginia lean so heavily on the prestige right. of vinifera.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And I don't, I don't think of it as a detriment, I just think of it no. as a challenge. Right. Um, but I tell people all the time, they'd go and buy, they drink beers and they will sit down at a bar and they will look at maybe if you've got 25 or 30 drafts at a bar and you're going to sit down over the afternoon and have, I don't know, three or four beers. You would probably have different ones and you might try different styles. So you might try a Pilsner and then you might try, you know, a pale ale and then you might try a sour and then you might finish with like some barley wine or something really heavy duty. But those those are like the way we approach wines here. You know, North Carolina has good muscadine. It has good uh, fruit wines. It has great vinifera. Um, and so people need to think about these wines the same way they would beers, which are to say they're just different styles. Hmm. It's not that one's good, therefore making the other bad. It's, it's not like you have one wine to the exclusion of another, You just need to accept them as they are, each independent and different. Um, And to answer your question about growing the grapes out here, we were told not to. And that was because, at least from the perspective of NC State, they believed, honestly, that if you grew vinifera out here, that Pierce's disease would kill those vines in a time frame that was too short for you to economically return your investment. That's what they meant. And... That was a fair assumption. The reason I felt compelled to do so was that there's vineyards on Knott's Island that planted vinifera in 1986. Hmm. Those vines are still there. So, um, I guess, anecdotally, here, vinifera had been growing sure. longer than anywhere with the exception of Biltmore, West Bend, and a handful of small vineyards in the egg. Uh, we weren't being like, trying to be like really iconoclastic or anything. There was a guy that already did 15 years before we did um, at Martin and David Martin at Martin Vineyards, and so it wasn't it didn't seem that risky to us. Um, and I always tell people that you know there's been Vinifera in Currytown since I was like seven years old. It's been there for it's been there a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and he got his advice from um, Gabrielle Rose in, in Charlottesville. Okay. Mm, sure. Yeah. So that's that's where David got. A lot of his information and his tutoring came from Charlottesville. Interesting. And I consequently picked up on the vineyard that opened up next to him in 1999, had you know, Moonrise Bay. Mm-hmm. So at one time we had three fully functioning vineyards in Currituck. So we were up to about 40 acres at one point. And now you've just got the Martin Vineyard and us. The, the history of vinifera in Currituck runs longer than it does in some of these what we consider now established North Carolina wine areas. Yeah. It was just on such a small, small scale that it didn't it didn't warrant um, much coverage. Right is, is, is the best way to say that. Uh, and we only started with one or two acres at a time.
0: and that's smart?
2: <laughs> but I don't know what it is about this area that doesn't lead us to lose all of our vineyards to Pierce's disease. I'm not totally sure. Other than the water here is not Fresh, I mean, it's brackish, right? And it is hard for it is hard for a lot of insects to breed yeah. in those areas. Um, I, I believe it's more of an impediment to, to breeding for leafhoppers, uh, which are main vector. And we also um, have our vineyards kind of out, sort of away from these um, riparian buffers and tree lines, and I think are just in an area where it's super windy, mm. and so. A lot of the bugs just kind of hang out in the in the trees where there's less wind. And we're, we're part of a study with NC State right now about all these, they're trapping for bugs here. And they've been doing that for a couple months. And they are, they're finding more leafhoppers in the Yadkin Valley than they are in our vineyard. Hmm. So the leafhoppers are all over the state. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But the weather in the winter tells you whether you get piercings exactly. or not. Yeah. And so if it can't get below um 10 degrees five times the the inoculum in the vine is going to survive the winter and that vine will have pierces disease after that mm-hmm. so warm winters are going to make pierces pop sure. up in the Atkin Valley yep. and there and there won't be there won't be anything that we can do about it other than adapt or tear the vines out and replant yeah. so that it's a statewide issue yes. but it, when I was a kid or when I was in college and started reading these handbooks they had lines that would tell you where mm-hmm. you can sure. plant and, and the, the guidebooks actually still have some of these old maps in it and they're going to be moving that line pretty mm-hmm. soon. Yeah. You know, I mean, further you, and further west. Yeah. You're going to have to be up in like Boone to, to be safe at some point in right. the future. Right. Yeah.
0: So what are some of the things that you've learned over the years of doing business, growing grapes, making wine in this area?
2: I <laughs> talked to a, to a guy that does a lot of muscadine and, uh, the big muscadine business, and he told me when I first started, he's he like, man, you really should just... It's going to be so tough growing the grapes. You know, and the, the business of selling the wine is so much easier if you are maybe purchasing the fruit or just sort of doing the end process or maybe custom crush or bulk production. And that was really true. I mean, the the farming is just the hardest part. And the commitment to, to get into growing the grapes is more than I ever imagined. And some of that may be because of the size of our vineyard now. It was a lot easier to manage when it was smaller. Um, But selling the wine is not as hard as I thought it was gonna be. It's growing the grapes, you know? So um, once the product is in the bottle and and it's a good product, and, and, and you've been able to get some growth in the market, marketing the wine, getting it into restaurants and you get a fair amount of coverage, I think the wine really starts to sell on itself, but it can stand on its own. Damn, you've got to like grow grapes. (laughs) And and if you wanna have a a production where you keep all North Carolina fruit, that's that's pretty hard. Even harder is the estate model. Right. Because you are going to put everything, all the chips on you're betting everything on your farm and It is impossible for me to do that here because of hurricanes. Yeah. Right. So I have utmost respect for folks that are able to do that. Um, And I do know some people, you know, on the Eastern shore and up toward Long Island that do a full estate grown model. Um, It's just that I have a habit of getting winged by these different storms, even if they're not going right over us. Mm -hmm. We're just really stuck out here way out in the ocean and, and get a lot of weather. And so every year it seems like something in my vineyard is affected by tropical weather. I've I've never been able to harvest from Traminette to alionico, meaning one end of the book to the other, front to back. I've never been able to do it all in one year. Like ideally to make the varietal correct mm-hmm. version of each wine, mm-hmm. we've always had to pick something early to or make take some sort of provisional approach. So that's that's I think something that I've learned is that. And that would be common sense, but it's something that has to be brought up to people because I see a lot of vineyards that now say, oh, I've got to tear all these plants up and <laughs> the vineyards only been in the ground for 10 years. And I'm um, and telling them 10 years is a long time in East Coast viticultural standpoint. You know, they're they, they told it takes 10 years to make a profit, you know, in the wine business here on the East Coast conventional wisdom but Mm -hmm. it's going to take you might in 10 years be tearing half your vineyard up so that's not they don't tell you that (laughs) you know so So you have the proper yeah we have proper restart it's you know yeah and it's one thing if you stay right on top of it and do little replants here and there or if you keep growing and take one vineyard out let it go fallow for a year or two and you have another one waiting but um, the idea that you can just in one static motion plant this size vineyard and then have it last for 25 years and make profit for 15 years. And then it doesn't work that way. Like you get to the end of 25 years. What happens is you've replanted the entire vineyard within like 15 years and your financial plan didn't call for that. Even though your customers might be lining up at the door, loving the product, you fundamentally have to like farm the grapes here. That's the hard part. you know. (laughs) I think the customer's, come around on an individual basis though. They're not, it's not like the whole state now realizes the wines, North Carolina are really high quality. I think it's done on a tasting room by tasting room basis. Yeah. It's like a one-on-one transactional deal. You have to give that person the knowledge of North Carolina wine, instill it in them, and then they leave and they may spread that to one or two other people, but you can't count on that. Pretty much have to nail every single interaction. So the tasting room has to be good. That's the other thing I've learned is, like, you've got to to be good in the tasting room. Be open, you know, even if there's nobody there. Because then the one person might show up. Yeah, the door's closed. The one, the door's closed, and then they hit TripAdvisor. Right. And they'll just, they'll put you, they'll put you out there in the street. I mean, it's like, (laughs) you just, uh, we, we just stay open all the time, even though it hurts in the winter from payroll. Yeah. But being, being there and being open, I think. It's a big deal. We have a wine club, so we always want the people in the wine club to be able to stop by, even on a slow afternoon, and get more out of their membership by being able to sit at the bar and try the wine and have one-on-one attention.
1: Right. So It's always fun.
2: Yeah. yeah.
1: What's left the biggest impact on all, of all the things that you've learned? What's, what's left the business, biggest impact
0: in this business?
2: I think we made a decision to do a better job in the vineyard, say, about six, seven years ago. And we, we were going to make the decision to either start to cut back labor-wise and have a style of wine that was sort of just everyday pick up wine for the beach. Or were we going to re-up some, put in some major equipment to make the highest possible quality of wine? And that was the decision we made, was to go to really methodical and tedious practices in the vineyard to, so the fruit would respond. And so that was probably the most impact that we've had. I also think having wine clubs made a big impact for us so that we can get some of our smallest batch, most limited wines to our customers that are here the most and interact with us the most. Mm-hmm. And you know, we love the folks that show up one time a year on their way to the beach and pick up a three pack and they're awesome. But then a person that's going to be here 10 to 15 times a year, um, That matters too. And so we absolutely absolutely don't want them to feel like we're not taking care of them um, when the summer's here and it's crazy. A lot of the restaurants on the Outer Banks are, well, not, I'll I'll tell you, but they'll say, you know, we want you to come in here, but it's going to be a two hour wait in the summer. So they say to us locals, like, we'll see you in September. Like jokingly, (laughs) you know, the manager, they'll be, I will eat there in May. Yeah. And then, We'll just look at them and say, all right, we'll see you in October. No nod, knowing that we are about to be flooded. Right. Right. Um, But with our wine club, we always want to be staffed appropriately so that when somebody comes in, the wine club member doesn't get lost in a crowd. You might get three minivans, a caravan from Ohio, 15 people among three vans, come in and want to do a tasting. We don't have any rules. Like there's no maximum group size, no reservations required, pets are welcome, kids friendly, so it can become really like chaotic quickly. <laughs> so to take care of the wine club right. people is really high on my list. Like, yeah, because wine club member gets upset, that's bad news. No, so, oh, I mean, totally.
1: They're your best customer. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
2: <laughs> so we're kind of winding out
0: on the questions, and I mean, you kind of hit on something. You have a ton of people that come in. Uh, visitors to the area, just kind of like the seasonal, but you have a lot of locals that come in. Uh, you know, we're encouraging our listeners as well to come out here and Absolutely. visit. So what is one thing that you want visitors to the winery to know when they come to visit sanctuary vineyards?
2: I think that we want, um, we want people when they come out here to know that it's more than just the tasting and that they, if they keep up with us online and follow us, they'll see like, for example, you guys are here right now, but there's a food truck downstairs uh, from a brew pub, so they've got they've got canned beers available too. There's a local folk bluegrass rock band from Hatteras that's gonna be playing on the stage. That's just on Saturday. Mm-hmm. On Thursdays, we have music at night. Um, there's a cafe adjacent at the Cotton Gym. There's uh, hang gliding and adventure sports with Kitty Hawk Kites. It's on site right now. It is just uh, a destination. You know, and we're so close to Weeping Radish which is the first microbrewery in North Carolina. They're a half mile from us. So it's a bit of a destination in a way. And, and you don't just come in here and do a stand-up five-minute tasting. We want you to sit down, be here for a while. Tasting's free. Still not a pit, still not a charge for tasting. And that usually gets them through the door. Hmm. That's sure. usually, I think, like enough of a Oh, withdraw. Uh, free tasting gets everybody. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Sounds, who doesn't want free wine? Yeah. yeah. There's a reserve tasting now, just so you know. This comes in a Spiegel glass and hmm. you get to keep. And It includes the orange wines. It includes the double barrel. Stuff like right. that. Because cool. we are unable to offer a free sure. tasting yeah. with like 15 sure. different wines. It's, it's both expensive and it's too much wine to yeah. give yes. to a person. As so mm-hmm. from a yes. client standpoint... We've cut back the amount of wine that anybody's going to be allowed to have, and we encourage them to try the reserve wine tasting if they like dry wines, if they like esoteric wine styles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's we've split it up into two. So the people that are coming here and they just want to try two wines and get back on the road, they don't need to do the reserve tasting. Right. Yeah. yeah.
0: Very cool. Excellent. So what are you most looking forward to in the future?
2: I'm uh, making money. <laughs> <laughs> Being profitable, we keep expanding the vineyard. Yeah, so we're not a winery that was set up with a significant amount of money. We were a farm family that is using our existing resources and retrofitting them to become a vineyard and then a winery. So, how do you make the small fortune in yeah. the wine business start with the large one? Right. It's the opposite. we got we started with a very small amount of money in 2001. And so it is 18 years later. So, and we're still not technically making it because we keep pouring that money back into it. Yeah. So, to go to basically go from zero to 30 acres and outfit, you know, a 10,000 case winery without going to a bank for a loan or having a, a small fortune to start with requires you to do one thing each year mm-hmm. at a time, at a very slow pace. And I'm not sure if we ever will because we'll just keep. Experimenting, you know, I mean, we might plant five acres of um, Blanc du Bois next year, hmm. which would take a lot of money. You know, Blanc du Bois is this Pierce's resistant right. hybrid that makes a actually a good dry white wine. I don't know if y'all had.
1: Well, We've never had one, I don't think, but would def, definitely want to try one and have heard of Blanc de I know it's really big in Texas, for
2: example. Yeah, I mean, imagine a fresh and crisp white wine, even sparkling maybe, pretty mm-hmm. early that. Is Pierce's resistant and gets to be planted and worked in a low impact, maybe possible orga- maybe, right. nearly organic, maybe, really organic environment. That right. is like the future. Awesome. Of Even though it might not be a household name. So that's sort of where we're headed. We're yeah. not going to stop growing vinifera, but we have to start exploring ways to. Take the environment, what it's giving us, and instead of like us continually trying to mold the environment to our use, yeah. we're gonna start maybe listening to like what's happening from nature and, and do a better job of like interpreting that. And that might mean growing some off the wall grapes, you know, but grapes that are part of the new round of growing that are gonna be more sustainable. Mm-hmm. So we've stopped using herbicides and we just have permanent cover crops and use oyster shells under the vines and stuff like that is it's making a difference i mean we're seeing really diverse uh, life in the vineyard like bugs never seen before Hmm. i have no clue we need to go through the logbook and figure (laughs) out what's this is stuff that just yeah comes back or comes to live when it realizes it has a really sort of verdant patch of habitat under the vines um i seem to see less like problematic bugs, you know, we see kind of beneficial. Yeah. I mean, I think that we're just trying to turn the vineyard into something that trying to turn it into a really sort of pastoral area that just happens to have vines in it cool. rather than just taking this space and making sure. it work for us. We're going to try to work around it yeah. and let it do its thing.
1: Well, John, thank you for joining us today. I'm Talk. We appreciate it. We look forward to future visits with
2: you. Cool. Thanks for having me. Thanks, John.
1: That's it for this episode of Cork Talk.
0: Thanks again to John for hosting us at the vineyard as we explored its rich history.
1: If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating and a review.
0: This helps others find our podcast. And don't forget to follow us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NCWineGuys. Until next time, and remember, a Cork only
1: talks when it's out of the bottle. Cheers!